Good morning, I'm Paulo. I'm one of the elders here at Reality Ventura, and we're going to continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew as we start chapter 15, starting with verse 1. I'll be teaching out of the, uh, the NLT and the NASB this morning. Verse 1, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law now arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. They asked him, why do your disciples disobey our age-old tradition? For they ignore our tradition of ceremonial hand-washing before they eat. Jesus replied, why do you, by your traditions, violate the direct commandments of God? For instance, God says, honor your father and mother, and anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. But you say it is all right for people to say to their parents, Sorry, I can't help you, for I have vowed to God, for, for I vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. In this way, you say they don't need to honor their parents, and so you cancel the word of God for the sake of your own tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce. For they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. Then Jesus called the crowd to come and hear. Listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. You are defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you realize you offended the Pharisees by what you just said? Jesus replied, Every plant not planted by my heavenly Father will be uprooted, so ignore them. They are blind guides leading the blind. And if one blind person guides another, they will both fall into a ditch. Then Peter said to Jesus, Explain to us the parable that says people aren't defiled by what they eat. Don't you understand yet, Jesus asked? Anything you eat passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. But the words you speak come from the heart. That's what defiles you. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile you. Eating with unwashed hands will never defile you. That's the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text. Thank you for the power of your word. We just submit to your authority right now. The truth of what your word is what you want to say to us, your, ch- your children, your people. Just ask, God, that you would fill me with your spirit, Lord, to be faithful to teach and preach what you want to say to your church. And I pray you anoint my family, my friends here, to receive all that you have for them. We submit this to you, God, knowing you're the only one who could do anything about it. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so you guys remember last week, right? The disciples had some drama out in the middle of the lake, right? There's this massive storm. Jesus walks on top of the storm. And even to the degree where he calls Peter out so that Peter can walk on the storm. Some pretty radical stuff. But while Peter is walking on top of the storm, he takes his eyes off of Jesus. He, he puts his eyes on his circumstances. And then he starts to sink, right? And he said, oh, why do you have so little faith? Why did you doubt me, right? Jesus brings them back, and they go into the boat. The storm stops, and they continue on. And 
Our account says that they cross the lake and they land in an area called Gennesaret, right? It's a little bit further down from Bethsaida, which is where Jesus originally, originally sent them. He said, go to Bethsaida, go ahead of me, and I'll meet you guys there. And it's probably a result of the storm, right? The storm was blowing them. It probably drifted them a little bit off course. So now they're in this place called Gennesaret. And when they land there, the people recognize Jesus. It's like, oh, man, it's Jesus. Jesus is here. And so they took all their sick and all those who needed healing, and they took him to Jesus. And if they could just touch him, they would be healed. So major ministry is taking place here. And so we start in our text this morning, chapter 15, and Matthew tells us that there are some Pharisees and teachers of religious law that came from Jerusalem to see what was going on. They wanted to see Jesus, and they wanted to see all this ministry that was taking place, right? They're traveling from the big city, Jerusalem, the center of where everything was going down, and they go to this little, little ministry, this bumping, exciting little ministry out in the hillside in the countryside. Why? What was their intention? What was their purpose? What were the Pharisees' agenda? Well, We've seen in a few instances already that Jesus has had some run-ins, right? He's had some run-ins with the Pharisees and the religious elect, right? Jesus would, he'd be in a crowd and he would respond to the faith of the people and he would heal them. He would heal them, paralyzed people, have them stand up. He would say radical things in those gatherings. He'd say, hey, your sins are forgiven. He would heal people on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to do work on the Sabbath, but Jesus healed people on the Sabbath. And that didn't sit well with the Pharisees. Didn't sit well with the Pharisees. It didn't fit in the box of how they saw things were supposed to go down. They didn't see it that way. And honestly, Jesus didn't fit their expectation of the one who was to come. Jesus didn't fit in that description in their eyes. And so there was this opposition that was developing between Jesus and the religious elite. It was an opposition starting to develop. So I would propose that the Pharisees and the religious teachers, they had come with a heart to oppose and maybe even shut down the ministry of Jesus, regardless of how fruitful it is, right? It was was fruitful in people's lives. People were getting healed, miracles were taking place, and people were benefiting from that. But the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law, they had an agenda to oppose that. And so with that heart, instead of marveling at what was taking place, instead of worshiping God and giving glory to God for what was happening, the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law came and they nitpick on the little detail, a little tradition that Jesus' disciples weren't following. They say to Jesus, why do your disciples disobey our age-old tradition? For they ignore our tradition of ceremonial hand-washing before they eat. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? People are getting healed. People, people who are paralyzed are standing on their own strength. People are getting set free just by touching the fringe of Jesus' robe. And what catches the attention of the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law is the fact that the disciples weren't washing their hands before they ate. Guys, sometimes our traditions, our preferences, our hobby horses, the way we see that they, it should go down this way, it should look this way, it can cause us to miss out on some of those amazing things that God is doing right in front of us, right in your lives. Beware of that. 
And what they're referring to, what the what they're referring to, the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law, when they say age-old tradition, they're talking about the oral law. Oral law was customs passed down from generation to generation, also known as the tradition of the elders. And this was developed by students and teachers of God's Word. And they were looking for ways for God's people to apply God's law in specific situations in their lives. That's a good thing, right? This is actually, in spirit, is a really good and wonderful thing. Basically, these customs were built alongside the, the Torah, the law of God, and they were built in order to keep the law. In, in a sense, it was to build a fence around the law of God so that if there's a fence around it, I won't violate the law of God. For example, consider the separation of meat and dairy that's still observed by Orthodox Jews today. This practice was based on the oral tradition designed to make sure that Deuteronomy 14.21 would never be violated. Deuteronomy 14.21 says, you must not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. So, if we build a fence around that and we say meat and dairy are never to be consumed together, then there's no way a young animal would be cooked in its mother's milk. You guys get the picture? So, this washing of hands that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were talking, to, talking about and referring to were oral traditions designed to keep people from violating the dietary laws of Leviticus chapter 11. They wanted to build fences around and That's what the washing of hands was talking about. So it's not that the washing of hands is a bad thing. It's not that oral tradition was a bad thing. I tell my kids to wash their hands all the time, right? Anytime that they come from outside into the house, wash your hands. Before you eat, wash your hands. If I catch them picking their nose or wiping it on something, like, wash your hands. What are you doing? Crazy. So it's not that washing hands or hygiene is bad. Jesus wasn't against that. It's just that the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law had put an emphasis on those traditions over more important, weightier matters of the law. That was the issue. And in this case, they were focused on a tradition of washing hands before eating, and they were blind to the fact that people were being healed by the power of God. They were missing it. And later in Matthew, Jesus calls the Pharisees out again. Matthew 23, uh, starting in verse 23 Jesus says to the Pharisees, What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Blind guides. Maybe sense a theme there. You strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. So the religious elite not only put the wrong emphasis on what was important, they had it missed, but they also had an absolute wrong idea of what defiled a person. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. And as we see from our text, Jesus was going to set things straight. He was going to set things straight. Jesus says to them, in response to them, their question, says, why, don't you, why do you, by your traditions, violate the direct commandments of God? For instance, God says, honor your father and mother, and anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. But you say it is all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you, for I have vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. 
In this way, you say they don't need to honor their parents. And so you cancel the word of God for the sake of your own tradition. You hypocrites. Jesus calls them out for putting their oral tradition, their fence that was supposed to help people apply the law in their lives. He was calling them out. It's like, you're putting a higher value on those things instead of the law of God. And so they lost sight of what really was important. And in that, Jesus says that they were canceling the word of God for the sake of their own tradition. That is so powerful. Calls them hypocrites. The following quoting of the prophet Isaiah is pretty heavy. Jesus goes right after them. He says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. He goes right for the jugular there. The context of this passage in Isaiah that Jesus is quoting, it's, it's when Jerusalem was being judged, right? God allowed this tragedy to take place to draw in order to draw Jerusalem back to himself, right? Because of Israel's hypocrisy, this loving of an outward performance versus true inward purity, God caused the blindness. In Israel, he caused an inability to understand. And then finally, he also closed the eyes of the prophets and of the visionaries. He caused things to go silent. And that was the state that Jesus saw the religious elite in. They had allowed what may have once been a genuine and deep love and reverence for God. Maybe at some point it was that way. But they had allowed it to become a self-serving, surface performance, man-centered religion. Somehow, in their hearts, that's what it became. The Pharisees felt better about themselves because of these things. Tithing out of their herb gardens making their worship look a certain way. They felt better about these things, but that's not what God wanted from them. And that's not what God wants from us. God doesn't want man-made religion, man-centered religion. He doesn't want that from us. He calls it fake worship. God is way more concerned about our hearts. You guys remember the parable of soils when we spent pretty long time about the parable of the soils. Jesus unpacked the intricacies of how the heart is vital for the seed, God's truth. It's vital for that, for that truth to take root and flourish in someone's life. So if the soil is good, what would happen? Fruit would come forth 30, 60, and 100 fold if the soil is good. So focus on the soil. Focus on your heart. The Pharisees got caught up in the outward display but the soil was toxic. Guys, an outward display of worship, not from the heart, isn't glorifying to God, and it isn't good for anybody. So Jesus is quoting Isaiah because he sees exactly that in the religious elite. These were people who claimed to be followers of God, people who honored God with this outward performance but Jesus is saying their hearts are far from God. And Jesus calls them out, says their worship is fake. It looks good. It looks holy. It looks reverent and it looks sacrificial. But it's fake because their hearts were far from God. What God is more concerned about is our hearts being close to Him. That's what He wants. 
He wants our hearts to be close to him. And so Jesus wants to set the record straight right in front of everybody, right? He calls everyone out. He says, come here, try to understand. He brings everybody close. And he's about to correct what the people have probably been taught for for a long time. He's about to undo this weight that the religious elect have burdened the people with. In verse 11, he tells people, tells everybody, that what really defiles you is your heart. Not what you put in your mouth, but what comes out of your mouth. Because what comes out of your mouth is an indication of where your heart's at. So what are we talking about when we say heart? You know, throw that around a little bit. What's Jesus referring to? Are we talking about this, this muscle, this, this organ that sits inside of our chest? No, I think it goes deeper than that. I think we all know that it goes a lot deeper than that. The Strong's definition calls it as this. Heart, the soul or mind, at is, at is, at is, is the fountain and seat of the thoughts, passions, desires, appetites, affections, purposes, endeavors. So we're talking about something deeper than just the physical. Jesus is referring to that innermost being when he talks about the heart. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. So Jesus wants to set everything straight in the disciples and in the people's hearts and minds. What defiles you is what's inside of your heart. Now, this must have been an absolute shift in the way that people thought and the way that they understood things like cleanliness and purity, holiness and defilement. It was probably a massive shift. Totally changed everything. And that's what Jesus kind of did, right? He came here on earth to kind of right our thinking. He always took things a level deeper, addressing the deepest parts. You guys remember in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, Jesus was talking about adultery. And when Jesus said that, even, you know, talking about adultery, he says, if a man even looks at a woman with lust, he has committed adultery with her in his heart. He takes it like that next step deeper. And then he talks about murder, right? And, and Jesus t- talks about murder, and he says, he goes deeper. He says, hey, don't murder. You'll be, you'll be subject to judgment. But even if you're angry at somebody, you'll be subject to judgment. He always took it to that deepest place. He was always addressing the root, and the heart was always a part of it. And it took some, it took some time, right? It's like a shift in the way that everyone was thinking. So it took time. I mean, if things about it, topics like circumcision and communing with Gentiles and what food was permissible, these were all heavy topics in the early church, right? They debated about it. They discussed about it. They're discussing it. They, they, they battled through it. And to a certain degree, even to this day, we still have conversations about that stuff. The Apostle Paul knew in Philippians chapter 3, he talks to the, Philippians church, the Philippian church. He says in verse 2, Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For, he, for we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who truly are circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though 
though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Jeez, Paul's a little humble there. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it as all garbage, so that I could gain Christ and now become one with him. I no longer count my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Paul knew. Paul knew. He understood what defiled a person was the state of their heart. What made him right with God was a clean heart. Being made, with, being made right with God was going to be done through faith in Jesus. If there was any way that somebody with outward performance could make themselves right, Paul says, man, dude, I got that part dialed. I have that. But he's saying, no, knowing what I know now and knowing who I know now, all that outward stuff is worthless. Counting it as garbage, he says, comparing, compared to knowing Christ, compared to being truly clean and undefiled. Because of Jesus' work on the cross. All that outward display stuff, it doesn't even matter. It's not about those things. It's all about Jesus. And so Jesus saying this to everybody at that moment was groundbreaking. It's not what you put into your mouth that defiles you. It's your heart. It's always been about the heart. Everything traces back to a heart issue. And Jesus is urging the people to be more concerned about the state of their heart versus the outward appearance of their lives. And this is so convicting to me as a follower of Jesus. Because I hear Jesus saying this to me. He's saying, Paulo, I'm more concerned about your heart towards me more than anything else are you. I'm like, wow, God is more concerned about my heart Versus my hard work ethic. He's more concerned about my heart than the fruit of my life. He's more concerned about my heart than about my sacrifice for him. And I'm afraid I can't say that I'm always right where he's at with that. Because sometimes I, I care more about what people think of me versus being joyfully and willingly obedient to God. Sometimes I care more about how clean and orderly my life appears to others versus letting the Lord really address those deep, hidden areas that he's been wanting to redeem. Sometimes I just spend more time and effort concerned about how I outwardly look versus allowing the Spirit to really prepare my heart for what he has in store for me that day. And guys, 
this struggle, it spills over into everything. It's not like in this little side compartment of my life. It spills over into everything. It spills over into my parenting. I'm way more concerned about my kids' outward obedience than I am about their hearts and fostering a genuine love for Jesus. It spills over into my marriage. You know, I'm, I'm way more concerned about looking like Michelle and I are doing well relationally than I am sometimes about allowing God uh, doing that unearthing of the stones and the rocks and the boulders in our relationship. It spills over into my finances. Sometimes I'm way more concerned about tithing each and every month faithfully instead of letting it be this act of worship and gratitude towards God, instead of letting it be this celebrating of first fruits, instead of recognizing His generosity and His faithfulness towards my family and myself. And I hear the Holy Spirit say, Paulo, I'm more concerned about your heart being close to me Everything else will be good if that's good. What's he saying to you? What's he saying to you? What are the areas in your life, your whole life, where your focus is a little bit more on the outward appearance of it all versus the core core heart issue at the root of all of it? What's he speaking to you about this morning? What are some of the areas he wants to address? Because maybe you're investing way too much time and focus on the surface of it when there's these gnarly roots that he just wants to reach in and just grab. What's he saying to you? I know that sounds harsh. It might sound harsh to some of you guys, but I think it sounds harsh because it's convicting. It's going right deep in there. I know that's why it sounded harsh to me when the Spirit said it, is because it's going right deep. Because I'm in that tension as well. And and I'm in, in... And in most days, guys, I fail to focus on the deepest matters. And this isn't meant to be a condemning thing. You know, the Holy Spirit doesn't condemn. That's what Satan does. The Holy Spirit convicts. And what the Spirit is saying, he's saying, come on, Paulo. Come on. Snap out of it. You've been given a new heart. You don't have to deal with the surface stuff. You've been given a new heart. This heart is responsive to God. This heart knows God. Let's focus on that instead of the outward stuff. And the thing about focusing on our hearts, guys, when we start to let the Spirit lead us in that deep stuff, things, it's not fun. It gets daunting, right? Because if we're really honest with ourselves and if we're honest with God, what we see in our hearts, in light of God's holiness and righteousness, what we see in our hearts, we don't like that. We don't like it, right? We don't like that even in our good works, the good things that come from our lives, there's something in it for us, something that's a little bit self-focused. Right? We don't like that we see a little hunger for recognition. Or we don't like, oh, I might get some credit for this. We don't want to admit that, but that's going on in our hearts. Or even just like when you're doing a good thing, like hungering for that good feeling that comes from that. We don't like that that's that. We can't just be free and do it for God and do it for God alone. We don't like that in our humanity, there's always some slight tinge of selfishness mixed in there. We don't like that. And what about, and that's like, that's our good stuff. I'm talking about the good things that we do. What about our sin? What about the stuff that we're not supposed to be doing? Right? Let's not even get started with that. So what can a man do? What can a man do when it comes to changing or bettering or improving a man's heart, our hearts? What could we do? Nothing. Nothing. There's nothing. Only God can do that. 
Only God can do that. God says in Ezekiel, verse, uh, Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19, he says this through, through this prophet. It says, And I will give them singleness of heart and put a new spirit within them. I will take away their stony, stubborn heart and give them a tender, responsive heart. So they will obey my decrees and regulations. Then they will truly be my people and I will be their God. There's nothing we could do But God can do something. God can do the impossible. God, in this passage, was he was addressing the hearts of Israel, right? Their hard hearts had led to severe disobedience. So God judged them. God allowed the nation to get exiled, taken to a distant land. And he was saying this through his prophet to give them hope. And their hope in the future was that God would do this heart work. That was their hope. That God would do this heart surgery. He wasn't going to improve their hearts. He was going to give them a heart transplant. God would replace their hearts. Stony, stubborn, disobedient hearts. And he was going to replace it with hearts that were soft and tender and responsive to him. And what was going to come from that? Now the fruit comes, so they will obey my decrees and regulations. The heart gets fixed, and the outward gets fixed after that. And this morning, guys, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer here, I'm here to tell you that God has done that work in your heart now. It's already been done. Then they will truly be my people and I will be their God. What a promise, right? What a promise. God being the only one who could change a person's heart, he willingly does it. How? By giving up himself. He gives up himself to heal us from our heart issues. Our sick, hardened, critical, sinful hearts needed to be replaced, not improved. They needed to be replaced. And that has a cost attached to it. The cost was the spotless lamb needing to be slain in order to pay for the debt that our sick hearts racked up. The perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, willingly laid his life down on the cross to give us new hearts. Can I get an amen? And because of this sacrifice, we get to be his people. Not like these distant subjects. We get to be his people and he is our God. That's the truth of it. That's the fruit of it. So my charge to us is let's live like it. Let's live like that. Let's enter in boldly. Let's walk in intimacy. That's available to us now. He is the initiator, the one who executes the process. He's also the finisher. And we get to benefit. He gets the glory. What a deal, right? What a deal. Verse 12 says this, the disciples asked Jesus, hey, did you realize that you just offended the Pharisees by what you just said? And what was Jesus' response? Oh, man, maybe I, should, maybe I should clear that up with those guys. Maybe I should make it all right with them. Maybe should I take it back? Should I? No, that's not what he said. That's not what he said. Jesus was unwavering in his stance. He was unwavering. He knew. He was unwavering about how the heart was truly what defiled a person. He wasn't going to back down from that. It was vital that the people back then understood. And friends, it's vital that we understand that this morning. He tells the disciples this. 
Every plant not planted by my heavenly Father will be uprooted. So ignore them. They are blind guides leading the blind. And if one blind person guides another, they will both fall into a ditch. Jesus remained vigilant and not being swayed by the Pharisees. He knew who he was. He's the Son of God, sent by the Father. And he knew who the Pharisees were. They were plants that weren't planted by the Father. If you guys remember the parable of the wheat and the tares, he's talking about them being the tares. They were the tares that, you know, eventually would be uprooted, uprooted, judged at the end. So the charge to the disciples was, hey, ignore them. Ignore them. Don't listen to them. Don't follow them. Don't pay them any mind. They are headed towards judgment and destruction. But here's the scary part. Scary part for me as someone in this church family, it scares me. Because these blind guides are leading others who cannot see for themselves into the ditch with them. That keeps me up at night. That keeps me up at night. We're talking about people who are just getting acquainted with, their love of, with the love of Jesus. People who are less mature in their faith and really, really young in their walk. People who can't really see all that clear right now. And these can unfortunately be swayed by leaders who are blinded by their spiritual pride. And the result is they both find themselves in the ditch. So the question I have for us is this. Who are we following? Who are we following? Are we following man's traditions? Or are we using the Word of God to be the final authority in our life? What's coming out of the mouths of those that you're following or the books that you're reading, the people that you might be listening to on the Internet, does spiritual humility come out as the tone of their talk or does spiritual pride does grace and mercy come out, or is it, spirit, is it a critical spirit? Let's make it a little bit more personal. How are you leading? How am I leading? Are we leading like Jesus, or are we leading like a Pharisee? Spiritual humility is key to properly approaching God. Both Peter and James refer to Proverbs 3.34, when he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's so strong. The Pharisees and the teachers of religious law had hearts that were not seeking God. They came with prideful and critical hearts, looking for ways to oppose Jesus or find something wrong with his ministry. This is crazy. You guys know that Jerusalem was, like a, was almost 100 miles away as the crows flies, as the crow flies from Gennesaret, a hundred miles. And these guys' hearts were so jacked up that they traveled that far. It's not like they had a car back then. They traveled on whatever, camel, by foot. They traveled a hundred miles just to be critical, just to shut something down that they didn't understand, just to push back on something that they couldn't fit inside their little ministry box. And they were blind to their heart's condition. They were blind to what was taking place right in front of them. And they were blind to who was in front of them. The Son of God. The Lamb of God. The Lion of the Lamb. They were blind to that. Because He didn't fit. God opposes the proud 
but gives grace to the humble. And so Peter, he asked Jesus for an explanation of how people aren't defiled by what they eat, right? Because it was such a groundbreaking thing. There was this massive shift. And Peter's like, uh, teacher, you gotta, you got to clear this up. you got to explain this to me. I'd probably be the same way. I'd be like, Jesus, you need to tell me that like 15 more times. I don't understand what you're talking about. That's not what they taught me in Sunday school. And so Jesus explains again in more simple terms, in more clear terms. What goes into your mouth goes through your system and goes into the sewer as waste. But from your heart comes gnarly, gnarly things like evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. From your heart, that's so heavy. Some of you guys probably thought the problem was in your head, right? Oh, the things that I've seen, my memories, my thoughts, things that I've recorded in my mind, that's the issue. And it's like all in my head region. But Jesus is saying, no, that stuff, that's birthed in your heart. That's the deepest place. Ecclesiastes 9.3b says this, Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Wow. Afterwards, they go to the dead. Gosh, that's tragic. So if the heart is so nasty and evil, and there's nothing we could do about it, where does that lead? Where does that leave us? What are we to do? Well, praise God. Praise God. He is the initiator, right? Remember our passage in Ezekiel? God puts in us a new heart. Doesn't improve our hearts. He gives us a new heart. And that's what was necessary. And from that heart comes the fruit that reveals itself on the outside. And in this life, we exist inside that constant struggle between the old nature and this new identity. The flesh versus the spirit. The parts of our hearts that understand its newness and the stuff that feels so old still. Paul describes it as this in Romans chapter 7, verse, starting with verse 18. And I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Gosh. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle in life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to, to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable, excuse me, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by the sin and death? Thank God. Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Right? Amen? Can you guys identify with Paul in this, in this passage? I mean, you want to do good things, but you don't. The stuff that you don't want to do and you know you shouldn't do, you still do. Man. Even with this new heart that God puts in us, there's this battle, guys. There's this battle. But the very fact that there is a battle proves that the spirit within us is doing a work, that there is this new nature that's trying to show itself. So that's good. The fact that there is a battle is good. Don't get discouraged by that. But what needs to happen in this battle is constant surrender. And that's like counter 
to our thinking as well, right? When you're in a battle and you surrender, that means you lose. At least that's how I think it. But that's not how God's economy goes. What needs to happen in our battle is constant surrender, progressive surrender, as Britt called it before. You know, you surrender your heart, right? And in that, God does a work. And he makes you more, like, aware of these other things that's in your heart. He goes, hey, look at this, Paulo. And then you're like, oh, Lord, I don't like that. Here, take it from me. And then he does a a deeper work. And then he goes, hey, look at this. And there's, like, this deeper work. And we follow Jesus in that deeper work. We go deeper with Jesus in this surrender. It's tough, but it's good. And I think Scripture shows us the posture we're supposed to have as we go deeper with Jesus in our hearts. And I'm going to pretty much close with this. David, our beloved David, the one who, very opposite of the Pharisees, where they say, you know, Jesus was saying that these guys' hearts are far from me. David, on the other hand, was called a man after God's own heart. It's the opposite. It's beautiful. David, who God called a man after my own heart, he penned these two psalms that I would hope would help us today as we leave. It gives us an indication of the right posture toward God in these times. He says in Psalms 26, verse 2, Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart. And when God reveals these things, when he responds to that and he reveals these things he wants to deal with, I think Psalm 51 is our response that David wrote. David says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Lord, search my heart. Search my heart. And then when he shows stuff, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Search my heart. Create in me a clean heart. That's our posture. That's how we are as God's children. A humble posture. And this matters to God. This humility is what God is searching for, the Bible says. It's what He's looking for. And it's this humble heart that God moves towards. And He blesses it. I ask you guys this. What outward work or appearance Are you leaning on this morning as your functional Savior, as your justification, as your sign that you're in? If that's you, if there's something that God's showing you, I want to charge you guys, turn and run to Jesus, the healer of your heart. What heart issue is being revealed to you by God right now? What's he showing you? Ask him, create in you, create in me, God, a clean heart and renew a new spirit within me. Thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is living and breathing and active. Thank you that you are faithful to do everything that you promise in it. The promises are yes and amen in Jesus. We thank you for that, Lord. And we ask that you would search our hearts this morning. Show us the different areas and the different ways that we're way more concerned about how we look outwardly. And we ask that you would reveal to us the deep, hidden issues in our hearts that related to those things. 
the areas of our hearts that still need to realize that it's new and that it's responsive to you. We bring this to you, God, because you're the only one who could do anything about it. And we find great hope that that's your desire. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.